But it can be a wonderful feeling to finish something that you have been working toward for a long time. Right? Uh, one example would be we're almost done preaching through the Gospel of John. We've been at that for more than a year. And when we finish, that's going to feel really good, right? To finish school, whether high school or college or whatever, to finish building a house, to finish your working career and get to retire. All those are significant milestones that are worthy of celebration and often bring us much joy and relief, right? Man, glad that's over. But not every finish line comes with a celebration. Perhaps you've seen marathon runners who reach the finish line only to collapse. They've got no energy left for celebrating. They barely made it to the end. Perhaps you've had some moments in your own life where you finished something so difficult or exhausting that you didn't feel like celebrating. You were just done. And that was enough. And that was okay because the finish wasn't the end. Sometimes when you finish one thing, even a hard thing, it can open up a new season new opportunities, and ultimately, a new beginning. When Jesus gave up his life on the cross, we're going to see this morning in John 19, one of the things he said was, it is finished. And when he said that, he did not mean it was the end. It just meant that part was over. And that completion, that Ending what he finished opened up a new beginning for us. So let's read this morning the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Uh, I'm going to pick it up. It's really the end of verse 16, technically. It goes into verse 17. And I'm going to read through verse 37. It says, they, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things took place. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, we've already seen how Jesus was brought before the high priest and then before Pilate, how he was accused by his own people, how they pleaded, um, insisted that Pilate crucify Jesus. They backed him into a corner by telling him that Jesus claimed to be a king and Pilate, as a representative of Caesar, the the ultimate king uh, in worldly terms, right, Pilate must deal with Jesus, who's claiming to be a king. Otherwise, Pilate was not doing his job of representing Caesar's interests there in Jerusalem. So, Pilate finally relents and gives Jesus over to be crucified, though he has found no guilt in Jesus. Pilate has said more than once, there's no reason to kill Jesus. But... His hand has been forced in a sense, and so he sends Jesus to be crucified. They take him to a place called the place of a skull. That's the place where this crucifixion is going to take place, and that's a fitting name, right, for a place where people are going to die. The place of the skull. Jesus has to carry his own cross to that place. And when they get there, Jesus is not the only one being crucified. There are two men being crucified with him. And John tells us one of them was on either side. Jesus was in the middle. And on Jesus' cross was placed this inscription that Pilate prepared that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, we don't want to rush over this because this is terribly significant. John spends quite a bit of time talking about this inscription. Part of what is so important and interesting about this is that Pilate is telling people the truth about Jesus. He may not realize it. The Jews seem to. They want Pilate to change it. Because Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. He is the promised king from David's line who would sit on David's throne, who would establish a a kingdom of justice and righteousness that would last forever. He's the one Isaiah prophesied about. 
upon whom uh, the government you know, would be upon his shoulders. This is him. And Pilate's inscription proclaims that, speaks that truth, as it were, even as Jesus is suffering as the king for his people. And not only did Pilate tell the truth, but he told it to just about everybody who was there. Because John tells us that in verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. So it's not like Jesus was crucified away from the public eye where almost no one was there to witness it. He's there near the city. He's outside the city gates, but near the city where there are lots of people coming and going. And this inscription that Pilate had prepared, uh, John tells us, was written in three different languages. In Aramaic and Greek and Latin. Now, Aramaic was the language that the Jews in that part of the world would have spoken at that time. It's related to Hebrew. We usually think of Hebrew being the the language of the Jewish people as it is today. But at this time it was Aramaic, which is similar but not the same. Latin, of course, is the language of the Roman Empire. And Greek is the language of the Greek Empire that came before the Romans. And Greek was so important and significant and spoken by so many people, just like English is today, um, that the New Testament, though it was written mainly by Jews, it was written in Greek, because that's what a lot of people could speak and could read. So John, by saying, Pilate prepared this inscription, put it on Jesus' cross, right outside the city, in the three most significant languages in that part of the world at that time, is telling us almost everybody who was there, who could read or was there with somebody who could read, would have known what Pilate had inscribed about Jesus. That this is the king. This is the king of the Jews. That's who this man is. And because the Jews recognize the significance of that, they say in verse 21, the the religious leaders, they say, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. They wanted him to, to make clear, this is a claim that he's making. We do not agree with it. Remember the the religious leaders had just said a few verses earlier when they were um, demanding essentially for Pilate to crucify Jesus. They had Pilate had said, "Do you want me to crucify your king?" And they said, "We don't have a king except for Caesar. This guy's not our king." So they didn't want anyone to think that Jesus was in fact their king. But Pilate. Again, probably not even realizing the full significance of what he was doing. Was proclaiming the truth about Jesus, the good news about Jesus, in multiple languages. Even as Jesus died, as the promised Messiah, the good news that he is the king who will reign forever was being proclaimed right then and there. It's not even hidden. Written there for everyone to see. And when he rose from the dead on the third day, it will become even clearer how good that news was. That Jesus is the king. That the one who suffered on the cross, the guiltless in the place of the guilty, is the eternal king with an eternal kingdom. 
who welcomes anyone and everyone who acknowledges him as Lord. That's what was happening even while Jesus was being crucified. But not only that, Jesus, of course, knew what was coming even before this happened. He endured terrible things. And over and over, John tells us how what he was suffering, what he was enduring, fulfilled the scriptures, fulfilled the prophecies recorded in the Old Testament hundreds and in some cases thousands of years before. For example, most of us know that while Jesus was being crucified, the soldiers who were there overseeing his crucifixion, they cast lots for his clothing. John talks about how they they split up his clothes and one garment he had was, was seamless. And so instead of ripping it and splitting it, which would have ruined it, they cast lots. It's like throwing dice to decide who was going to get it. And John tells us that this fulfills Scripture. And he quotes Psalm 22, the psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A psalm that describes in incredible detail the kinds of things that Jesus would suffer at his crucifixion, even though David wrote it a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. But it's not just that it fulfills this scripture about, um, you know, someone casting lots for your garments. That alone is significant. But why is it significant that David prophesied that and that it happened to Jesus? Why does it matter? Is that just like an interesting detail so that we could know, hey, David said this ahead of time? Or does it also mean something? It also means something, right? When you watch a movie where someone is getting out of jail, right, what do they always give them when they leave? They give them back their clothes, right? Because even somebody who goes to jail, they keep your clothes for you. So when you come out, you get your clothes back, right? I don't know if that's the way it works in the real world, but that's the way I always see it in the movies. <laughs> What's so significant about the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothes is they're sitting there around the cross knowing he's about to die, knowing he's never going to need any of his clothing again. And so right in front of him, they're rolling dice to see who gets his best garment. He's not even dead yet, but he might as well be as far as they're concerned. It's another way of communicating the, the horror of the suffering that Jesus is experiencing. That before he even takes his last breath, enemies are dividing his clothes among them as their spoils. Jesus, even though he's suffering so much, is not thinking only about himself. Probably not even thinking mainly about himself. While he's there on the cross, enduring agony that most of us probably can't even imagine, he sees there the disciple whom he loved, whom we know is John, who wrote this gospel, whom we call the beloved disciple. John is there at the cross, and so is his mother, Mary. And Jesus, as it were, hands Mary over to John and entrusts her to John so that he will care for her. That's why he says, woman, behold your son, and then says to John, behold your mother. And it says, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
Jesus, as Mary's firstborn, would have likely been the one most responsible for her care. This is also the the clearest indication we have in the New Testament that Joseph had probably died at some point. Uh, We don't know when. He's not mentioned um, after Jesus' childhood. He just kind of disappears. And so probably he had passed away at some point, which means Jesus would be the oldest male in the family. And now he's dying, so who's going to care for his mom? John is. Jesus is, is concerned about, is caring for, is honoring his mother, even as he's approaching his last breath. And so it says in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, I've done everything I need to do, everything has been taken care of, it, it, it's almost over, and he knows that. So he says, and this also fulfills scripture, John tells us, I thirst... And they give him some sour wine on a sponge. They stick it on a branch, hold it up to his mouth, and he takes it. This also fulfills Scripture. Again, as John says in Psalm 69, verse 21, another psalm that David wrote, I believe, about uh, intense suffering. The New Testament makes clear in more than one place that this psalm is also fulfilled in Jesus. We read these words. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Again, the significance is not only that David talked about drinking sour wine and then Jesus drunk sour wine on the cross. That's part of it. But even in addition to that, it's the fact that the kind of person who gives you poison for food or sour wine to drink is someone who is incredibly hostile toward you does not care about you. It's not, not seeking to show hospitality to you and kindness, but someone who is hostile and wishes you harm. All, all of Psalm 69, you can see that hostility, that animosity against the one that David is writing about. The same kind of hostility and animosity and hatred that Jesus experienced even on the cross. No, no nice, pleasant, delicious last meal for Jesus. No, sour wine is the last thing he gets. And so when he takes that, it says, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We've been reminded over and over again throughout this part of the story that Jesus said all the way back in chapter 10, nobody takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And Jesus, though he looks like a victim nailed to a cross that you wouldn't think anybody would choose, he's the one who says, okay, now it's done. I'm finished. My work is complete. I now give up my spirit. Luke tells us, uh, he says, uh, you know, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, He is intentionally knowingly breathing his last. It's finished, but it's not the end. Jesus has reached the finish line, but by finishing this work, he has opened up a new beginning. And we know that for multiple reasons. For one reason, we know that Jesus does not stay dead. If he had stayed dead, it really would be the end, not just the finish, not just the completion, but the end, full stop, no more to the story. It's over. 
But that's not what happened. Jesus came out of, the, out of the tomb on the third day. He rose from the dead. He's alive now, and the Scripture says he'll never die again. It was impossible for death to hold him. So, though he finished his work of paying for our sin and taking the punishment that our sins deserve, though he finished that work so that that's done, the story is far from over. In fact, Luke tells us, I love the way Luke starts the book of Acts. Right? So Luke records the same story as Matthew and Mark and John in his gospel. But then Luke also wrote a second book that picks up where the gospel of Luke leaves off and tells us the story of the apostles of the church in the early days. But it's not just the story of the apostles and the story of the church some have said, you know, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, could really be called the Acts of Jesus. Because even after he ascends into heaven, he's still at work. In fact, Luke begins the book of Acts this way. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Implying he's not done doing and teaching. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes down on the disciples on the day of Pentecost, and they're all speaking in different languages, and a crowd of people comes around wondering, what in the world is going on? And Peter starts preaching, and he's talking about Jesus' crucifixion, showing from the Scripture that His resurrection was prophesied. Then he says, you want to know where all this stuff that seems so crazy is coming from? You want to know how we're speaking in all these different languages? You want to know how this happened? Jesus went to the Father's right hand, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and He poured it out on us today. And He's the reason why you're seeing and hearing all this right now. Jesus is still at work. So it was finished, but it wasn't over. And not only that, it's a new beginning for us, too. Because the Bible says that now, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Because Je Jesus finished His work on the cross, we can now start to live a new life in Him. We can have our sins forgiven. Right? We can be reconciled to God. We can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. We are, if we're in Christ, we are new creatures, new creations with new life. And even when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a new beginning with a new heavens and a new earth. We get to dwell in His presence forever. So, yes, He finished, but it's not the end. Not by a long shot. Now, after Jesus died, there's a couple things that still needed to happen. At least a couple things. We needed to know, everyone needed to know, that Jesus was really and truly dead. There still you know, have been people uh, who think that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He was almost dead. Uh, he was, you know, unconscious for sure, you know, but they put him in that tomb and then, you know, he kind of came to eventually and I don't know how he got out, you know, but somehow got out. You know. We need to know that he's really, truly dead, not just almost dead. 
So what happens, and we, and we often forget this, we, because of the way that Jesus died, we forget the way that crucifixion really worked. Crucifixion was typically a long and painful process of death. Jesus experienced the pain for sure. But his crucifixion was relatively short. Didn't last very long. Often it did. And so because this is happening on Friday, the Jewish Sabbath is Saturday, and this is Passover time. So it's also the Sabbath during the week of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a, it's a high day, John says. It's a, it, not just any Sabbath, right? It's kind of like, I mean, it's connected to Easter for us, right? It's like Easter is for us. They, they don't want people publicly hanging on crosses, suffering and dying during the Sabbath of the Passover. So they go to Pilate and they say, we want these guys dead and off the crosses before the Sabbath, before tomorrow. So please take care of that. And what they would do is if they wanted someone who's being crucified to die more quickly, they would break their legs. Now, breaking your leg is not going to kill you unless you need your legs to push up your body so that you can breathe, which is what you needed when you were being crucified. If you couldn't push up your body, you couldn't breathe. And so if they broke your legs, eventually you would just suffocate or something, right? So that's what they go to do. They go to the first guy, they break his legs so that he'll die, they can remove his body before the Sabbath. The guy on the other side of Jesus, same thing. But they don't break Jesus' legs. Why? Because he's already dead. They don't need to break his legs. But just to make sure, because when you're in charge of executing someone, you've got to be 100% sure they're dead right before you let them go. To make sure, it seems, that Jesus is dead, he takes a spear and shoves it in Jesus' side. And blood and water come out. So there's no doubt that Jesus is really, truly dead. That's the point of all of that happening. Right? And there are plenty of witnesses around to observe this. Right? We'll come back to that in just a moment. But Jesus' legs are not broken. And John tells us that fulfilled scripture, verse 36. He says, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And he's referring to the instructions that were given by God through Moses to the people of Israel for the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb whose blood was to be put over the doors of their houses, whose meat they were supposed to eat, they were told, don't break any of the bones of that lamb. Now, if you said, hey, Passover lambs, no bones are broken. Jesus never had any broken bones. That seems significant, right? Okay, yeah, that's pretty significant. But what if when Jesus was dying, and the way that they accelerated death on the cross was by breaking people's legs, and he was crucified in between two other people, and both of their legs were broken, but Jesus' legs were not. Now that's really significant. John says, don't miss what that means. It's one more way that God is telling us what Jesus is accomplishing through his death. It's not just that he died. 
Lots of people died. It's not just that he died on the cross. Sadly, a lot of people died on crosses too. It's that Jesus was dying in the place of others. Like the Passover lamb that was slaughtered, not for the good of the lamb, of course, right? But so that God would pass over his people. So that no judgment would fall on them because that lamb died in their place. That lamb's blood was shed so that they would be marked as the people of God and God would pass over them. By telling us that Jesus is dying at Passover, like the Passover lamb, he's saying he died so that if his blood covers you, God's judgment passes over you, you are marked as one of his. And you don't have to fear his judgment because Jesus has already taken it in your place. Not only that, when he was pierced, in his side, John says in verse 37, again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. He's referring to the prophet Zechariah, who said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And John even connects this to Jesus' return in Revelation 1-7 when he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All of this that's happening at Jesus' death is fulfilling the Scriptures. But not only that, finally John tells us in verse 35 that he's not telling us this on you know, second or third hand testimony. That he himself was there. He saw it. He is giving us an eyewitness account. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John seemed to know, perhaps by the time he wrote this, he already did know. That there would be people who would try to explain all of this away who would try to say, it didn't really happen like that. It didn't really, he didn't really come out of the tomb alive. It wasn't really that way. John wants everyone to know, I was there. I saw it. Not making this up. This is what happened. And I want you to know that this is what happened so that you may believe. The Bible does not ask us to take some great leap in the dark on something that we have no reason, no evidence to believe. Just hope that maybe it's true. All over the place, the Bible is giving us reasons to believe. Prophecy, hundreds, sometimes over a thousand years old, being fulfilled to the letter. Eyewitnesses writing down their accounts. People whose lives were dramatically changed, saying, this is what I saw this is what happened. This is what I believe. This is what I want you to believe. The Bible is inviting everyone. If you haven't trusted in Christ, the Bible is calling upon you to believe God's word, to believe his promises, to believe that this is what really happened. Again, not a blind leap in the dark, 
but belief based on prophecy, eyewitness testimony, and beyond that, the testimony of millions who have believed and had their lives transformed by this God, by this Jesus. Jesus has done everything necessary to save us. That's why he said it's finished. The work is done. But don't mistake it is finished for the end. Just because the work is done doesn't mean the story's over. In fact, it means it's just begun. Now he gives the fruit of his sacrifice to us so that we become his new creations and so that we can follow him wherever he leads. Let's pray.